as a church together, um, we worship and we celebrate you. May you be glorified in all we do and say. Um, May Jesus be the center, as he already has been, continue to be the center of what we do as we look to the scriptures. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. And we're not sending kids to God's backyard. That's just an automatic response. Uh, We're all staying here. Okay. Let's go, let's go to the book, of, uh, the book of John. I did something yesterday I never do, which is I stayed out. I went to a wedding in Beverly, Massachusetts, um, which is a very nice town. If you've never been to Beverly, it's, it's uh, across the channel from Salem. Really nice town, but I stayed out way too late. Um, uh, and uh, I got home. Are you ready for this? This is, this is staying out too late for me, just so you know. I got home at 9.30. I was exhausted. I was like, I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I'm going to get enough sleep tonight. Um, so uh, it, that's side effect of waking up at 4:30 in the morning every day. Uh, but we we uh, we're in the book of John and we're in chapter 11 this morning, um, and we're we're looking at the results, the response to Jesus's resurrection of Lazarus. Um, we're and and. I want to I want to spend some time looking at the responses because I think it's important not only that we read what goes on but we understand the dynamics behind what's happening. Throughout the Gospel of John, John has been presenting us with a with a conflict between Jesus and the ruling elite, the the religious leaders of of Jerusalem. They they have a hard time with Jesus. They have a tough time dealing with him. And he kind of puts them in a weird position when he resurrects somebody from the dead. Resurrection tends to put people in weird situations. Um, it's not something that happens all the time. And I appreciated the emails through the week. as I, I was like, you can count the resurrections, if you remember last week. I said, you can count the resurrections of the Bible on one hand. And then we counted them, realized there were six. I was like, okay, two hands. Now we're up to eight. Um, from emails and things, and we're, we're still we're still good. We're still on two hands. I don't think we're going to encounter anymore. Um, but Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. He comes out of the tomb um, in chapter forty-four, uh, chapter eleven, and verse forty-four. The man who died came out, and then we get to verse forty-five, and this is where we're gonna we're gonna start today. Verse forty-five. Many of the Jews. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So we have a situation right off the bat. There were a group of people there at the, at the funeral, at the mourning period, where Jesus, where Jesus resurrects Lazarus. And there's many people who believe, but there are some who their response is to go and tell the Pharisees and the high priests and the priests what has happened. They went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, gathered what's called the Sanhedrin, um, the ruling council of Jerusalem. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So this is, this is the equivalent of uh, the when Ronald Reagan had the summit with Mikhail Gorbachev back in the 80s. These two groups of Jewish, Jewish leaders are at odds, excuse me, about everything, the Pharisees and the priests. The Pharisees 
um, believe not only in the, the scriptures, but they believe in, in what they call the oral law or the oral Torah. Not only do they have the scriptures, but they have what they believe is the inspired way to interpret the scriptures. And it's oral because it was entrusted only to them. Nobody else gets it. All right. So we have this group. We have one group over here. And then on the other hand, we have a group, the, the priests or the Sadducees or the Zadokites, who are, um, they're a group of people who they believe their, their response to Scripture is um, an attitude of we're going to examine the Scriptures minutely, and if there's not something in it, God must not care about it. All right, so to the point that they would argue little points, like, um, you know, they, they would look at it and they would say, well, you know, the, it doesn't address um, cotton. All right, there's no cotton in the Bible. So we're okay, we're fine with that, you know. Um, or or the, the Romans don't appear in the Bible, so in, the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, right? So it's okay, we can do whatever we want with the Romans. There's no, no issues with them because they don't appear in the... That's how, that's how they were kind of the strict literalists. If it wasn't directly spelled out, they were okay, you know. Um, and that was kind of their attitude. Well, these two groups, the Pharisees were popular out in the countryside... And the Sadducees are popular within the city of Jerusalem, and all they ever do is fight and bicker. So there's a cold war going on between these two, and the only thing that gets them to come together is they both don't know what to do with Jesus. Because here's a guy who's doing signs, um, he's performing many signs, and, and, and you need to understand that that's a description of a messianic figure. So they're basically saying, look, this guy is claiming to be the Messiah. What do we do with him? In verse, in, uh, verse 40, 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I mean, I mean honestly, you, resurrections tend to gain followers. Okay, So if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, nor that the whole nation should perish. So here we, on one side, we have this group of people, they get together, they say, what are we going to do with this guy? Um, if we let him go, everybody's going to follow him, and we're, we're going to be in a rough situation because the Romans are going to come, and, and they're going to take away our place and our nation. Now, what do they mean by that? Well, the Sanhedrin is made up mostly of older men. Um, and by older men, we mean, we mean in their late 40s to their 60s. I mean, age lifespan was not, as, uh, was not 75, 100 years like it is now. But they're older men, and they are old enough to remember, because this is around 30 uh, AD, they're old enough to remember when Herod the Great died. Herod the Great was the last king of Israel. When he died, his sons were such a mess. I mean, the ones that he hadn't killed. We won't get into... Herod's not a great person. Um, but the, the sons that are left are such a disaster that the Romans sent their, their military in and took over uh, what is Israel. 
They split it up into several districts. They appointed governors. They appointed some client kings, some, some kings that could, people who could claim to be kings but weren't really cl- kings because they worked for the Romans. The Romans had completely turned things upside down um, after Herod the Great had died. And so they're looking at a situation. They've lived through a time period where the Romans invaded, took over, reset the administration, and these guys have finally found a balance. They finally found a way to live comfortably under Roman rule. They finally found a way to be Jewish and Roman at the same time. They've got a groove. They've got a pattern. They've got a way of doing things. And they're worried that if people keep following Jesus, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our place and our nation. Now, look at the way that that's phrased. All right. So do they believe that Jesus is actually the Messiah? No. They think Jesus is just another rabble-rousal, troublemaker, Galilean who's going to lead a revolt, and the Romans are going to come in, and we're going to pay the consequences. We're going to lose everything again because of somebody like him. Their concern is for themselves, not for the followers of Jesus. They couldn't care less about them. Not, not, for, not for anything that's going on in, in the real world at this moment. They're concerned for themselves. Now, it's interesting because what they're concerned for actually happens a generation later. And it's not because of Jesus. It's just because the Jews refuse to pay their taxes. Um, and the entire city is destroyed, and the, the priesthood ceases, and the Pharisees have to completely reset their way of viewing the world. That happened in AD 70, just a few decades later. And John, John, the author of the gospel, by the way, would have lived through that and seen that. So he's viewing this through that lens. So ironically, what they're concerned about with Jesus will actually happen because of their own successors. But one of them, when in, verse, in verse 49, we talk about Caiaphas, um, and, and Caiaphas was actually high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. Um, he was high priest for 18 years. And being high priest for 18 years, um, it requires that you be a bit of a slippery fellow. This was a job you weren't supposed to hold for that long. Um, It's kind of like, if you remember, when Vladimir Putin got to the end of his term limit as president of Russia, and yet somehow continued to be president of Russia. All right, this is kind of what is going on here. Um, He's still in power, he's still in authority. His father-in-law had been high priest. Now Caiaphas is high priest. And and it's described in terms that... um, Because the generation, remember John's gospel is written to the second and third generation of believers, so they don't remember the Jerusalem temple, so they don't know that about the priesthood, so it's kind of described the way the priesthood worked in the pagan world, where there was a new priest elected every year. So he says he was high priest that year, it's kind of an idiomatic description. But when the high priest starts to talk, what does he say? First thing he says is, you don't know what you're talking about, you know nothing at all. He says, it is better that this man, literally, now most of your translations read just simply that this man die, all right? Um, 
uh, it, uh, it is in verse 50. Do you not understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? The actual phraseology there, it's that one man should be sacrificed. It's better to sacrifice one man for the sake of the nation. Now, John loves to, move, to, to say things in a certain way that evokes a thought. If Jesus is being sacrificed, who is he being sacrificed to? Who's the God in this situation? It's the Romans. It is better that we make a sacrifice of this guy's life to the Romans than we lose our nation. It is better, it is better that we give up one of our own and let him be killed. For our sake. Now John loves the irony of this statement. Because look at what he says next. He says, He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John goes, This guy had no idea what he was talking about, and yet he said the truth. Jesus would be sacrificed, but not just for the good of one nation, but for the good of all the children scattered abroad. Now what does he mean, all the children of God who are scattered abroad? By John's day, the church is no longer Jewish. The church is Jewish and Gentile, and those, those people have been intermarrying. The church has become something its own. It is unique. It is different. It is neither Jew nor Gentile. It is neither barbarian nor Greek. It is neither free nor slave. It, it is one thing, and it's a new thing that God is doing. And John goes, he didn't even realize that what he was saying was that Jesus was going to bring all of you together. He didn't even realize that what he was saying was going to come true in a way he could have never intended it to become true. Verse 53, so from that day, they made plans to put him to death. Now, how many times over the past few weeks have they thought about killing Jesus? What? Quite a few. Um, It seems like every time Jesus opens his mouth, somebody picks up stones to kill him. All right? Oh, let's stone him. Let's arrest him. Let's get rid of him. What does he do? I mean, they're constantly, it seems like they're constantly doing this. But this is all, those are all spontaneous reactions. Now, it is a premeditated plan. Caiaphas says, look, it's, you guys don't understand. We need to do this. It needs to be done. Everybody goes, okay, we need to get together. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests, the high priests, they say, all right, it's time for us to get together and make a decision How do we kill this guy? All right, so there is a legitimate, it's not even a conspiracy, because a conspiracy is a secret thing. We find out later, they tell everybody, if you see Jesus, let us know so we get him arrested, so we can get him killed. I mean, so we can take care of, I mean, we can, all right, they're determined to get rid of him. Um, So they make plans for the day of his death. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now this, this town is a, it's a, a town that's now in the West Bank 
uh, or in the, the, what's called the occupied territory of the west bank of the Jordan River. It's called Tybee. I've been to the town. All right, so I, I, I've, I've seen it. We went there we, we, when my family was in Israel. It's about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a little bit to the east. It's in the mountains of Ephraim. Um, it, was, it was called Ephron in the Old Testament. Um, today it's called Tybee. Um, and it is, it's, Jesus goes north. And it, it's a weird move that he makes. Because if you remember, the last time they got mad at Jesus, when he was there for Hanukkah, uh, Jesus, Jesus had crossed the Jordan River. Well, Hanukkah is a winter festival. So Jesus has come back across the river to, to uh, help Lazarus. And while he is helping Lazarus, it appears that what happened was the rains happened, the Jordan River floods. He can't go back across, so Jesus heads north instead into Tybee. And what he does is he goes far enough north that he's out of the jurisdiction of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish leaders. So they can't get him, but he's still close enough that he can be to Jerusalem in a day. All right, so, so Jesus is just outside. How frustrating that must have been for the, Jew, the Jewish leaders. All right, we've decided to kill him. Where is he? He is right over the border. Oh. You know, and so Jesus is, is, he's always one step ahead of these guys. He's always moving. Um, he's always doing stuff. And so he's there, and he's got his disciples. And what is he doing while he's there? This is the fascinating thing about Jesus. Um, and and I, I, at one point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and I'm going to write uh, a, just a, a breakdown of the topography and the geography of John's gospel because of the way that everything gets set up. So he goes to this town of Tybee or Ephraim or Ephron. It's just north. It's right on the edge of the wilderness. And he seems to have a place there that he can stay for a while, probably a month or two. Because the next time we'll see him, he's headed, he's headed south for the Passover. And, and what's he doing while he's there? That's a, John doesn't even answer that question. He just says, so he goes to Tybee for a little while. And why does he go to Tybee? He just gets out of reach until the Passover. He's just staying out of reach. Now, there's no reason for him to go to Galilee. Galilee is a couple weeks walk w- with a group of people. And then he'd have to just turn around and come back. So there's no reason to go home. He goes to Tybee. Um, and then he's going he's gonna to come back in just a little while. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. You remember, all through the Gospel of John, we've been talking about how people would go to Jerusalem for these festivals, they would travel with their family, and then if you had a sick or a lame person or something like that, you would leave them at the gates, or you would leave them at a a pool, you would get purified, and then you would go up into Jerusalem. And, and the reason that, that we see this kind of set up, they're going, to, they're going to travel to Jerusalem to purify themselves. Uh, the, the group of people that's headed to Jerusalem, they know that if you show up late, you're not going to get a seat. Jerusalem's a town of, of maybe 75 or 100,000 people at this time. And during the Passover, swells to probably one or two million people for a week. All right, so you can imagine the strain that that would put on the infrastructure and how hard it would fi- be to find a place to stay. So everybody's headed to the Passover and they figure Jesus, he's been at every feast for the last three years, Jesus is going to be coming. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to pur- purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? 
Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So literally, people are coming into the temple. Now, by the way, this is not just the hoi polloi, not just the everyday people. This is the teachers, the instructors. They're the ones that get to Jerusalem early. The rabbis, they're the ones that get to Jerusalem early to purify themselves, make sure they have the right seats, make sure they set up their spot in the temple court to sell their merchandise. You know, they've got their t-shirts and CDs and things, and they want everybody to follow them. They're all going to get there early. They're the vendors, basically, and they're arriving so that everybody, when everybody gets there, and as they're coming into the gates to Jerusalem, the Sadducees and the Pharisees have stationed people saying, hey, if you see Jesus of Nazareth, now isn't it interesting that they know him so well at this point? Everybody's familiar with this guy, all right? They, they know what he looks like because of the number of times he's done stuff they didn't like in public. And so, all right, so you know who we're looking for. You know, he's tall, Swedish, plate on his head, white robe. Um, and you, he stands out in the group. Now, obviously, the Bible says there was no comeliness that we should desire him. Jesus probably looked like a pretty average guy. He didn't look like the guy in your family Bibles. Um, and, but he, you know, he's glowing. Uh, but the, uh, they, they say to him, keep an eye open for Jesus. If you see him, let us know we want to arrest him. Now, that shouldn't surprise anybody because they've been trying to arrest him for chapters now. So they're like, okay, we know he has to come to Passover because Passover is the great feast. So he's got to come to Passover. When he comes, let us know so we can arrest him. See, when we read later on, we read about Judas Iscariot paying, you know, and, and he, he gets paid to tell them where Jesus is. That's because probably Judas had heard this. Hey, they're paying for information for this guy. They're willing, they're willing to, to put out some money. They want to arrest him. And it's important that you realize that even for Judas Iscariot, and you, you, you need to remember this, even for Judas Iscariot, the Jews were not supposed to execute people. So Judas Iscariot, when he betrays Jesus later on, he probably thinks Jesus is going to get arrested, roughed up a little bit, and then sent home. I'm not sure Judas understood they were going to crucify him. I don't think he saw it the way, the way that we see it. In hindsight. Anyway, so he's in Jerusalem. They say, hey, you know, keep your eyes open. Um, and they say, if we, we see him, we're going to arrest him. And Jesus does just such a crazy thing. He's headed to Jerusalem in chapter 12, six days before the Passover. Jesus goes to Bethany, where he just raised somebody from the dead. I'd say he's pretty safe there. Now, Bethany is just about a mile away from the Temple Mount. It's not far away. Um, if you were to look at a map of Jerusalem, and kind of the Temple Mount is kind of angled like this, and on the west side is the Mount of Olives, and then right, beside, right behind Mount of Olives is another ridge, and that's where Bethany is. Bethany is kind of on the side of that next mountain. So Jesus, in order to get to Jerusalem from Bethany, all he has to do is go up the Mount of Olives and then back down. Um, so he's, he's pretty close, but he's in his home territory. He's safe. And so, and, and we read that that's where he's going to launch from. That's, and by the way, that, that, that location, Bethany, what he would have done when he sends his disciples, and we'll talk about it next week, but when he sends his disciples um, to set up the Passover feast for them, he, they literally, all they have to do is go over the hill and then cross a bridge. There's a, there's a causeway that leads to the, the door of the temple. So he's really, really close the situation. What I want to do, though, is I want to I want to just kind of 
I want to process this moment. I want us to really think about this moment before we get into Jesus going into Jerusalem. And, and that's really kind of where this is all going. But let's look at the hostility against Jesus and really ask ourselves the question, where did it come from? Where did it come from? As faithful Jews, whether they were Pharisees or Sadducees, shouldn't these people have been looking for the Messiah? Shouldn't they been their radar turned on about a guy who is doing everything the Messiah was going to do? He's healing the lame. He's he's healing the blind. He's raising the dead. These are Messiah kind of things. These are not things that happen on a normal basis. Why are they so hostile to this idea? The commentaries have a lot of things that they could talk about with this. Some, some people say, well, it's because Jesus didn't look like a Messiah. I, I'm curious what a Messiah was supposed to look like. Uh, some of them say the reason was that Jesus was a Galilean, all right, because he wasn't a Juju. Right? He, wasn't, uh, he wasn't from Judea. Oh, he actually was from Judea, but he had been raised in Galilee. He was born in Bethlehem. His parents are descended from David, um, or his mother is descended from David. Joseph, his stepfather, is descended from David. So, so I mean, he, he is uh, the line of David and all those things. I, I would present to you that there's a, there's, there's a simple reason. There's a simple reason why Jesus makes them so uncomfortable they're willing to kill him. And it is this, they have found a comfortable life that they created through compromise and um, their own abilities. Over the decades, the high priests and the Pharisees had reached an an equilibrium with the Roman power, with the Greek-speaking Jews, with the countryside and the land. And yeah, they fought and they argued and they did all that. But there was, there was comfort. There was familiarity with that. And the last thing that we want is for our Messiah to rock the boat. The last thing that we want is to have to adapt to a different situation. We all fall into this groove on a much lesser level. Now, we are not about to arrest somebody over the things I'm about to list. Um, My wife, in 2000-something, got the car that she calls the Scarlet Speedster. The speed, by the way, was not the car's fault. But she loved this car. It was a Nissan Rogue Sport, and it was red, and it was cool, and she loved this car. It was comfortable. It was easy to drive. It was quiet. The car we had had before that was a, uh, a Kia Sportage. Some of you love your Kias. Our Kia um, made so much noise, like the panels vibrating and things, it felt like it was going to fall apart the entire time you were driving it. And it would have these weird squeaks, and you'd have to like hit the seat to make it stop. And, and it was, it was, I mean, it was brand new. It wasn't like it was like a like a used car. Um, but anyway, she had the Scarlet Speedster. And she loved that car. That was her. I think it's probably the favorite car she's ever driven. Right. You know, like she just loved that car. She loved it even more than my white Corolla, my 97 white Corolla, which was our first car when we got married. And she loved that car and cried when we traded it in. Um, But she loved that Scarlet Speedster. But it was a lease. So we got to the end of three years. Now, this is pre-COVID, right? So now 
buying, forget about it, all right? Cars are ridiculously expensive right now. But, but then, so we brought it in. We were going to trade it in. Well, the payments were going to double and all this stuff. And I had put aside some cash. I said, well, let's just buy the same model car, all right? Let's just, we'll buy a Nissan Rogue Sport. And I even had the guy bring us a red one from a different dealership. So it would just be a swap-off, identical car, right? Nicole, is Scarlet Speedster 2 the same as Scarlet Speedster 1? No. She drives 2. She does not love 2. There's some things about 2 that she just doesn't like. She doesn't like the shape of the windshield. She doesn't like, there's like a weird black sensory thing in the middle of the windshield that they started to do with cars. It's really annoying. It doesn't have the hovery camera. Her first one had like this pretendy camera that it like generated a 360 view, degree view around the car so she could back into things and stuff. It just has one camera. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to get rid of Scarlet Speedster 1 because she hit a cop car with it. I'll let her tell the story about that. Um, but the, I mean, it didn't have all the bells and whistles and it was, it's not the same car, right? We get comfortable with things. How many of you have a favorite chair or couch? All men. Do you see it? I mean, there's a couple of ladies, but it's almost all men. They're like, I have a chair that is, you are not allowed to sit in any other chair. I remember being like 12 years old, my grandfather, I sat in his chair. And I thought it was all funny. Ha, 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 ha. I sat in Pap's chair. And I'm kidding you not. He walked in the room. He said, get out of my chair. And I laughed and smiled. He grabbed me by the arm, picked me up and threw me and sat in his chair. He's like, you don't sit in my chair. It's my chair. Um, my grandfather, he was a great guy, but he was strong. Um, we get comfortable. We get complacent. And sometimes when we manage to find a place because we're in kind of a difficult situation and through compromise and contortion, we find a place that we're comfortable. We don't want anybody disrupting that. We don't want anybody messing that. Because we know that there's, there's going to be pain involved. There's going to be adjustment involved. Now we think about that on just our regular level. Try to think about that on a national level, a religious level, an experience level, magnified to a thousand degrees. We may not be so quick to judge these guys because they're just being human. Do I think that the members of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were evil people? I think they were well-intentioned. I think that they thought they were doing the right thing. Look at the conflict they have. Should we sacrifice this guy for our... Now, now Caiaphas, he seems to be a bit of a jerk. He seems to be more than willing. It's like off the guy. You know, you get the feeling this isn't the first time he's had somebody put, put down, right? Like he's a mob boss kind of a thing. Which, by the way, that's what the high priest was. He was very much like a, a mob boss in these days. Um, he's comfortable with it, but the Pharisees are a little uncomfortable with it. They're, they're not sure what to do with this. They have an all-too-human response to the weirdness of a guy who resurrects people, who claims to be the Messiah. Now, why do I say this? I say this to remind us, starting with what Sean talked about at the beginning, how difficult it is sometimes to talk about Jesus and share the gospel. 
we have to remember how awkward it is to journey with somebody through this idea that Jesus is the Savior, the resurrected Lord, the, the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth, the justifier of those who come to him, the sanctifier, you know, all of these things, the head of the church, all of these metaphors that we use as Christians to describe Jesus, these sound a little wonky to people who are comfortable, who have found a balance, who have found an equilibrium, who have found a place um, that they can live. Um, uh, how many of you know the hymn, There is a Fountain? There is a fountain. Have you ever thought about the words of that song? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. If I, if I am a person from a culture that names people Emmanuel, I'm nervous about that song. That song does not make a lot of sense to somebody who doesn't know where it's coming from. And isn't it sound a little weird that Christians are closing their eyes and singing a song that says, there is a fountain filled with blood. That's Jeffrey Dahmer level stuff. That's a, that's a weird thing to say. Now we understand what we're talking about is that Christ forgives our sins and covers his blood covers, atones for our sins because there's a lot of biblical imagery about that. But that sounds a little weird. I like to believe, and I could be wrong when I get to, to heaven, but the book of Acts says that many of the priests came to faith in Christ. I like to believe that these guys were struggling toward Jesus. Not all of them, but some of them. And it would take the journey through his crucifixion and resurrection and the testimony of his disciples as they endure persecution and, and slaughter during their, as they speak about Christ, it would take a while for these guys to overcome the complacency and comfort of the balance they found in their lives to finally come to faith. I think as Christians, we need to be aware that when we ask people to come to faith in Christ, we are asking for a life-shattering decision. It is a big thing. Those of us that were, grew up in the church, we don't think about it that way. We, 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 in fact, if we're being honest, we get super comfortable in our faith. We get slouchy in our attitude toward church. It's like, I've heard all these sermons. I know all this preaching. I've heard his jokes a million times. He's going to tell the joke about Jesus with the dish behind his head again. He does that all the time. We get, we get relaxed in our faith. We get comfortable in it. And it's just, you know, normal for us. It's not normal for people who are trying to figure out this Jesus thing. And we need time and patience and reality of this faith lived out before them. Because you don't know who has struck a balance with the Rome in their lives and is really worried about this commitment. Not ready to make this leap. Not ready to make that jump. And, and by the way, if you're one of those people and you're here and you're exploring this whole Christianity thing and still trying to piece it out, I hope that no one is putting pressure on you. We believe that our God 
if this is true, we'll show it to be true to you and you will find a place where you will come to faith in Christ without us demanding that you do it. Without us, John Hodge and I talk all the time about 87 verses of Just As I Am, um, which is how I grew up, which was the pastor would start singing Just As I Am until the number of people he thought should come forward and become Christians actually came forward and became Christians. And they would put so much pressure. You're like, you know what? I'm just going to go get saved again so we can go have pot roast. I'm just going to go up and say I was struggling so we can get saved. Let's move on. You know? Christian camps are great with that. Every, every kid should go to Christian camp every summer and get saved again. Um, the, the, you know, this, this, whole, this whole thing, we need to be willing to create a space where people can encounter Jesus and ask questions and struggle through the comforts and difficulties. Because I don't know about you, I'd be much more comfortable with somebody who made a decision after they worked through all of their struggles and decide to follow Jesus than somebody who waits till after they make a profession of faith to start sorting through all the stuff that that means. Now, there's never going to be a perfect time. There's never going to be, you know, I've got it all figured out, now I'm going to follow Jesus. But we have to wait on God to be at work. Let me close with this. I'm a little over, I apologize for that. Do you realize that Jesus knew the hearts of every single one of those men on that council, that what they did did not surprise him. And I like to think that when Jesus turned his back on Jerusalem because they were plotting to kill him and he walks to Tybee, he makes that 12-mile walk, their unwillingness to believe continued to break his heart because all he wanted was for them to believe. And I also think that when the time came that those men who were there working through it, and like I said, the book of Acts says many of the priests came to believe in him. I like to believe that every time they came, Jesus just cheered. Because he knew their hearts. And he knows ours. He knows our journey. He knows our struggle. And Jesus is nothing if not patient with all of us. And I hope and pray that those of you who are journeying through this will come to a place where you'll put your faith in Jesus and say, yes, this is what I want to do. And I hope and pray that you, the Christians gathered in this room, as you're praying for your friends and co-workers, for them and, and your neighbors and your family and all of those people, that you're sitting there going, I, God, I want to see it happen, but I don't want to happen on my time. I want... I want to see you at work. Shuffling through all of the challenges we couldn't cross ourselves. Calling them to himself. And one day they come to faith. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, sometimes some of us are long-term cases. Some of us in this room who now call you Lord and Savior, it took decades for us to come, to kneel, to confess. Some of us grew up in the church. We made a confession early and we faced our challenges later. But you were already at work in us to call us back to yourself. 
some of us are still journeying. Some of us are still asking questions. Some of us are still uh, working through what is in our lives now that is comfortable and easy and whether it's worth to make the challenge, the step to face the challenges and the discipline and, and all the shifts that have to take place in our lives to follow you. Wherever we are, Jesus, we know that you love us, that you are drawing us to you. May we know your Spirit's hand in our lives, in our world. May we trust that he is at work.